getting tall. Well, after an uh, awesome time of worship this morning, I don't know if it was the Holy Spirit or my insecurities that said, hey, don't mess this up. Like, uh, what, what a great start to our service. If uh, you've been around Genesis, you know that one of our ministry partners is Shepherd Community Center uh, out of Indianapolis. And in April, you helped us collect just shy of 300 bags of food. Uh, that we were able to hand over to Shepherd Community. They were able to take those food bags and give them to students. Uh, they're a part of various programs, the school that they help operate. But they had so much food left over, they were able to, to serve even more, serve some of the families in their neighborhood. And uh, Shepherd shared this story with us this past week. They said, while out delivering food to a, a neighbor, one of our volunteers found a note on the porch with their name on it. The volunteer opened it and found a handwritten note that said, thank you, for all that you do for us. My husband always enjoys talking to you. Please know that we appreciate everyone at Shepherd Community Center, and we would appreciate it if you would pass this check along as a token of our gratitude. And I just, I love that story. I love that uh, we were able to be a blessing to Shepherd Community Center uh, so that they can bless the people that they spend every single day serving in their very own neighborhood. And isn't it just like the Lord uh, to just kind of spin it back around and to send that generosity back to a place like Shepherd Community Center. And so, again, thank you, Genesis, for your generosity. I mean, this is one way that we give. Uh, sometimes it's through things like food and then certainly through our financial resources uh, as well. And here at Genesis, there are several ways that you can give. You can give uh, using our website. You can uh, set up a one-time or recurring gift through text to give. You can also give through the boxes in the back of the room uh, before you go today. But thanks for being a part of the work of helping helping people find their way back to God. Uh, thanks for your financial support that we can just do more to, to share the name and the love of Jesus uh, with people, with others uh, around us and also around the world. And I want to let you know that this week uh, we're going to be emailing out quarterly giving statements so you can be on the lookout for that. Uh, I'm going to ask that you please read my email that's coming with it because I know we don't always do that, but please read the email because we've got something really exciting to share in regards to our greater giving goal. All right, so check that out this week, and uh, we'll talk about it more next Sunday. All right, uh, John chapter 9, if you've got your Bible with you today. All right, New Testament, John chapter 9, uh, if you want to turn there. If you love sports, uh, especially tennis. Uh, you, don't, you don't even have to love sports or tennis. If you love great stories, uh, stories of hard work and achievement, then you have to love the story of tennis superstars Venus and Serena Williams. Uh, not only are they sisters, but they're two of the greatest tennis players of all time. Their list of accomplishments is almost too much to comprehend. Get this, 122 singles titles between the two of them. 49 for Venus, 73 for Serena, uh, 14 Grand Slam doubles titles together, uh, individual gold medals for the two of them, including three golds in doubles Together, You can put them easily in a conversation of two of the greatest athletes uh, who have ever lived and competed uh, in the U.S. And if you've seen the movie King Richard, you know that their father, Richard Williams, played an instrumental role uh, in their upbringing and certainly in their tennis careers. Like even when the girls were a really young age, Richard had this vision for who they would become and the work that it was going to take to get there. And he was so confident in their future, <clears throat> excuse me, that he outlined a vision for their lives in a 78-page document that in, uh, that in his mind assured that his girls would make history. You could say 
that Richard Williams had the ability to see what no one else could see. And he saw what others questioned. He saw what others doubted, what a young Venus and Serena weren't able to see in themselves. Today, I want to look at a story of Jesus and his disciples and an encounter they had with a blind man. And I want to invite you, if you would, to watch closely with me uh, as we're looking at these words. Because while only one person in this story is blind, the fact is that nearly everyone in the chapter struggled with vision in one way or another. The disciples did. Uh, The man's parents, as we'll see, the Pharisees and others too. And Jesus is going to heal this man, all right, just to kind of get out in front of the story a bit. He's going to heal this man, a man blind from birth. He's going to give him the ability to see. But what Jesus does for this man here in John chapter 9 reminds us, shows us what he's more than capable for doing for you and what he's more than capable of doing for me. Because while Jesus gave him the ability to see physically, the greater miracle might be what Jesus can do for you and me spiritually. See, here's what I want us to see today. Here's what I believe the Lord has for us. It's this reminder, first of all, that Jesus wants to do something amazing in you. All right, he wants to do something amazing in you, in each of us. He, he wants to save you. He wants to and desires to have a relationship with you. Uh, our Savior, Jesus, the one we've been singing about all morning, he, he wants to redeem you in your life, to redeem your past, to give you, to give you hope, to give you sight, to give you the ability to see what your future can look like for him. He wants to be your light. But at the same time, while Jesus wants to do something in you, I also believe that Jesus wants to do something amazing through you. We live in a dark world. Uh, We live in a challenging world, a a world full of of hurt. Uh, This is a world full of pain. It's a world lacking hope uh, and so much confusion. And so not only uh, does Jesus want to give you life, to give you light, but he wants to be light through you. It's his desire to be light through every single one of us as his followers, and that means living your life in such a way that others will be able to see Jesus through you. Let's stop there, let's pray, uh, and then continue with John 9 this morning. Father, we thank you for this time together today and for this time of worship. We thank you for great stories about what you're doing through a place like uh, Shepherd Community Center. Thank you for the generosity of this church, and most importantly, Lord, we thank you for your word. And for what it reveals to us, uh, that it is uh, a light to our paths, that, uh, uh, Lord, that you speak to us through it, that it is your truth for our lives. And so uh, we offer this time to you. Would you open up our minds and, and ears? Would you give us eyes to see today? Lord, would you help us to see and understand what you can do in us? And would you help us to believe what you can do through us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, John chapter 9. Last week we looked at John chapter 8, or at least a little bit of it, right? We're not going to hit every verse. This is why you can be reading John on your own and talking about it in your small groups. We're just going to cover portions of these chapters as we work our way through John. But Steve spent some time with us in John chapter 8. We know that Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as Sukkot. Uh, Tabernacles was a celebration of the end of the harvest season, but also a reminder of God's provision for the Israelites during the 40 years they spent in the wilderness. 
wilderness. Tabernacles included two major ceremonies. There was the pouring of the water as well as the illumination of the temple. The pouring of the water was a reminder of God's provision of water as the source of life. The illumination of the temple served as a reminder of God's faithfulness and presence in the temple. And so Jesus is going to use this setting to pronounce himself as the living water, the one who who has come to give life to all people, but he also declared himself, as Steve talked about last week, the light of the world, John chapter 8, verse 12, sent by God to bring light to all people. And Steve challenged us to think about what it means to receive the light of Jesus into our lives, but also what it means to be the light of Jesus for others. And I want to continue along that same theme for today. And so John 8, if you have your Bible, ends with a group of people ready to stone Jesus. And for those reasons, Jesus and his disciples decide to move on from the temple. Let's pick it up in John chapter 9, verse 1. We read this. As Jesus went along, right, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Now, blind was a, was a major problem in the ancient world. And in cultures like this, the blind had no choice but to spend every day beside the road begging uh, to get the resources they need. Now, this man couldn't see anything, right? There's no one that he can see around him. Jesus, on the other hand, he has incredible sight. He's got perfect vision. And uh, while, while this man couldn't see Jesus coming towards him, you better believe Jesus saw him. He saw everything about him. He saw his pain. He saw his disability. He saw his story. And Jesus also was able to see what the, the potential power of God could be in this man's life. And so the disciples, well, they noticed the man too, and they asked Jesus an interesting question. Verse 2, his disciples asked him, Rabbi or teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents that he was born blind. Now, that sounds like a strange, uh, insensitive question to us, but 2,000 years ago, not so much, because back then there was this widely held belief that things like blindness was a punishment for sin, particularly uh, the sin of the parents. There was even this crazy belief that a child could could sin in the womb, all right, prenatally, uh, just to be clear. And so look, look at Jesus' response to the disciples' question Verse 3, he says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So who's responsible, the man or his parents? Jesus says, neither. Jesus says, no, I, I don't want you to worry about what caused this. I, instead, I want to get you thinking about what God is capable of doing and accomplishing through it. If you've ever struggled if you've ever struggled with, with questions about pain, if you've struggled with questions about why so much hurt, I, I realize Jesus' answer here uh, may not be completely satisfying to you, but the fact is that if, if you and I, if we go through life trying to make sense of, of every moment, every circumstance, every pain, every hardship, well, the reality is that it will be very frustrating to you. We live in a broken world. We live in a world uh, where every good behavior isn't rewarded, every bad behavior isn't always punished. Unfortunately, that means that people suffer. Uh, We all suffer. We all go through difficult times. People you love will die prematurely. There are uh, people that will suffer uh, encounter sickness. Relationships come to an end, but regardless of the suffering or the reasons for the suffering, here, here's what we must try and see, that, that no matter it is, what it is, no matter what you go through, like Jesus can, 
all right? Jesus can help. Like, he has the power to help you through. He, I believe that Jesus wants to do something in our lives, and, and he wants to do something with your faith so that you and I, that we can find all of the help and strength that we will ever need for this world. And I can promise you this, there is a better day that is coming. Right, we sang that song a moment ago, you know, that day when Jesus returns, a better day when things like sin and pain and blindness and depression and cancer will come to an end once and for all. But until that day comes, well, praise God for Jesus. I mean, aren't we so grateful uh, that God has provided for us through his son, Jesus Christ? And that's not some consolation prize either. Like Jesus is all we will ever need. And so I don't know what it is for you today. I don't know what burden you're carrying in here. I don't know what's holding you back. I don't know what it is that might be weighing you down or preventing you from seeing. You may not see Jesus, but I promise that Jesus sees you. He sees all of you and all of your pain and all of your story. And he is full of love. He is full of compassion and grace. And he has everything that you and I will ever need. And so Jesus tells the disciples, let's not focus on the why of the problem. Let's stay focused on the work we've been given. Shining light so others may see too. Verse 4, Jesus continues. He says, hey, as long as it is day, We must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And so Jesus goes on to identify himself again as the light of the world, the one who has come to save us. But he's also come to demonstrate for us what it means to be light for others. Now, night, when Jesus talks about night coming means we only get so much time. Every single one of us is living with limited time. Jesus knows he only has so much time before he goes to the cross, but it's also a reminder, well, it can be a reminder for you and me that you only get so much time, parents, to invest in your kids, all right, before they move on, before they go out on their own. You, you may not get another chance to share the love of Jesus with someone else. Like Jesus is the light of the world. He wants to shine through each of us. Verse 6 says, after saying this, Jesus spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. All right, so Jesus getting a little goofy here, all right, for us. We, uh, we saw him playing in the dirt in John chapter 8, the early part of it a couple of weeks ago. He's back at it again. Why in the world does Jesus spit on the ground and then put in the mud, man, or mud in the man's eyes? Well, in those days, saliva, at least from a, a particular person, uh, was thought to have medicinal purposes. But any good Jew would have been suspicious of this form of treatment because it was often associated with the magical arts. And so was Jesus dabbling with magic? No. All right, well, what was he doing then? Well, some suggest that maybe he's just messing with the crowd, all right, mixing it up a little bit so that he doesn't become too predictable in any one of his actions or miracles. Uh, I think others would say that physical touch was very important to Jesus. And so maybe he's using this act as a way of physically connecting with this man uh, as a way of activating this man's faith. Others say it's a reference back to creation. When God made man from the dust of the earth, we don't know for sure 
But where did Jesus send the man? John says that Jesus sent the man to the pool of Siloam. And this is a, 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 an illustration of the city of Jerusalem. There is a spring here called the Gihon Spring that sits in the Kidron Valley just outside the ancient city walls. And down here in the very far right corner is this place called the Pool of Siloam. Now, the, the, uh, the Pool of Siloam was built by King Hezekiah back in the 8th century B.C., it brought water from outside the city walls, the Gihon Spring, by tunnel into the city to the Pool of Siloam. Eventually destroyed, that pool was rediscovered in 2004. And you can see a picture of what that Pool of Siloam looks like today. It was an important place, all right, especially in the days of Jesus. And remember, remember, we're at the tail end of the Feast of Tabernacles. And what were the two major uh, ceremonies involved in that celebration? Again, there was the illumination of the temple, and there was also the pouring out of the water, the living water by the priest, where Jesus declared, oh, by the way, I'm the living water. Now I'm the only one who can give life and light to others. Do you want to know where the priest went to retrieve the water for the living water ceremony? You guessed it. Most likely the pool of Siloam. What's Jesus doing? He's just messing with their belief system, right? He's just turning everything upside down. What about the blind man, though? He's got mud in his eyes. What was going on his, in his mind as he made his way to the pool of Siloam with the mud in his eyes? I mean, did he feel a little foolish? Uh, did his heart start beating faster as he near, neared the pool? I wonder, did, did the light start creeping in at any point as the mud was still there in his eyes even before it washed away? Consider this. The blind man, he never saw Jesus. He didn't get to look into Jesus' face. For all we know, he's never met Jesus. But there was something about Jesus there was something about his word. There was something about his touch. There was something about the condition of the blind man's heart, even at the time that he encountered Jesus. Jesus told him to go and to wash in the pool of Siloam. What did the man do? He obeyed and he went. Let me just say something to those of you that are wanting to see more of Jesus at work, present and active in your life right now. Don't underestimate the importance of daily obedience to Jesus, all right? Obedience helps us see. Like, Jesus gave this man a command. He responded in obedience, and Jesus followed up that obedience by doing something radical in the man's life. Now, I can't promise you that obedience will guarantee that you get what you want, but I do know that obedience is very important to God. He expects it of us that we will be obedient to him, that we will be obedient according to his word. And, and, and obedience is important to him. And obedience, I believe, will position you and me to see God at work in our lives in even greater ways. And so what kind of obedience might Jesus be calling you to right now? I mean, maybe there's a phone call you need to make. Uh, maybe there's a sin in your life that you need to confess. Maybe there's an addiction in your life that you've been hiding or you've been pushing off to the side, something that you need to confront. Obedience means loving people as Jesus loved people. Obedience means to serve. Maybe he's been nudging you to serve in some way in our church or in our community. Does the way you manage your finances 
demonstrate faith and trust and obedience to him. Students, kids, do you need to practice obeying your parents? Jesus can use obedience to open our eyes to see him more clearly. Jesus gave this man his sight. And what does he do next? Well, this man, he goes, he goes back to his family and neighbors. Stop think about this. Again, he's never seen his family before. He's blind from birth. Right? He's never put a face to the voice. Think, think about all the things that he's seeing for the first time as he makes his way back to his house, the colors, the images. Can you imagine the emotion, the enthusiasm, even the confusion that he might be experiencing? Let's pick it up in verse 8. We read, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I'm the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it in my eyes. He told me to go to Salome and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. Have you ever tried to celebrate some really good news with people that you love, only to be terribly disappointed by their response? Like, where's the excitement? Where's the party, right? Where's the celebration? Here's the funny thing. If obedience helps us see Doubts can blind us. Uh, disappointment can blur your vision. Cynicism has this ability to push out the light and make way for the darkness to come rushing. And these people struggled to believe. They struggled to believe in the miracle because for all we know, it had never happened before. And sometimes we live in the dark because we convince ourselves that it's impossible, that the light is impossible, and we get stuck in the dark because that's all we've ever known, and we can't imagine anything else. And sometimes, well, sometimes the light is right there in front of us, ready to be received and enjoyed, but we're stubborn. We refuse to believe. We just don't know how it's possible. Verse 13 they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been born blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Take note of that. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs so they were divided? Let's get this straight. One day the man is blind. By the end of the day, he can see. But rather than finding others to celebrate with him, it's almost as if he's now the center of a trial with the Pharisees. What in the world are the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, upset about? Well, truthfully, well, truthfully, they're just they're ready to kill Jesus. All right, they're ready to take him out. I mean, he said some things. He said some things along the way, done some things. He certainly said some things at the Feast of Tabernacles that aren't sitting right with them. And he also performed a miracle on the Sabbath. And as we've said before, whenever you see the word Sabbath in the context, it always means that there is something even bigger that's going on here because Sabbath was a sacred day, the first day of the Jewish week. It was a day that was set apart as a day to remember God's holiness and the good things that God intended to bring from the day had been contaminated with a long list of rules and expectations that the Pharisees had established, kind of the do's and don'ts of the Sabbath. And so Jesus performed this healing on the Sabbath, and in doing so, at least according to the Pharisees, he broke at least three rules. 
Uh, he spit on the ground to begin with. That broke a Sabbath rule, all right, and also a Jenny Mumal rule because my wife doesn't really like our kids spitting on the ground. But, uh, but, but he broke this rule because when he spit on the ground, it, it formed into a clay, and according to the rules, that's work, and again, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. The second thing is that he put mud in the man's eyes like he was using it as a healing agent. That's work, too, and then ultimately the man was healed, and you guessed it, there are no healings allowed on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees are all in this tizzy that Jesus was violating these rules. Bottom line, they can't stand him, and therefore they can't see the beauty of what's happening in this man's life. And so they interrogate him. They interrogate the healed man, and not only him, but they interrogate his parents. Verse 18, they still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? They respond, we know he is our son, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He can speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That's why his parents said he is of age. Ask him. So John makes it clear that his parents were afraid, and it wasn't because they didn't believe their son. They were afraid that the Pharisees would have them excommunicated from the Jewish faith for acknowledging the miracle, for acknowledging Jesus. And and being put out of the faith, being put out of the synagogue or the temple, well, that'd be comparable to losing all of your retirement or Social Security. Uh, This would mean certainly lost business opportunities. Again, it means you're not welcome at the synagogue or the temple anymore. No, No fellowship anymore with God's people and public humiliation to the greatest degree. These were legitimate concerns. Acknowledging Jesus would come with serious consequences. And I wonder if any of you, if we can relate with that kind of fear. Because we all know we live in a quickly changing very interesting world, and it's only going to get more and more interesting. Like you, you take a risk, especially in certain environments when you speak up, when you talk about your faith. You, you take risks uh, when you stand for your beliefs, and as the uh, pressure increases, like the temptation will be to step back, stay quiet, keep your faith to yourself. Friends, we don't need to live in fear. Uh, we're, we're not here just to survive. Like, we're not just doing time. Like, we are here to boldly and lovingly share our faith in Jesus, sometimes with words and also in our actions. The Apostle Paul said this. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. When I'm willing, when you're willing to say, you know what, I'm willing to lose it all for the sake of Jesus Christ, I've got nothing to fear. Because this life, we know, according to God's word, is temporary for us. There are troubles that we will face that are momentary. They will fade. As Christians, we know that heaven is before us. The risen Savior is our motivation. Following Jesus and shining his light means a new way of living for each of us. The world, I can promise you, does not need any more marginal Christians. Right? Marginal Christians confuse the world. The world needs more of Jesus and more people living for Jesus and shining light for Jesus in everything that we do. Something is happening in this man's life 
and it's important. We can't ignore it. Let's look at this before we close. John chapter 9, verse 24. I think I picked this up in the New Living Translation just to mix it up for us, but here's what we read. So for the second time, they called in the man who had been born blind and told him, God should get the glory for this because we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. He says, I don't know whether he is a sinner, the man replied, but I know this, I was blind and now I can see. But what did he do? They asked, how did he heal you? Look, the man exclaimed, I told you once, didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? A little sarcasm here, 2,000 years ago, verse 28. Then they cursed him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but we don't even know where this man comes from. Why, that's very strange, the man replied. He healed my eyes, and yet you don't know where he comes from. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he is ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. Ever since the world began, no one has been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't have done it. And they looked at him and answered, you were born a total sinner. Are you trying to teach us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. They threw him out. This man is on his own. He's been kicked out. He's been excommunicated, and he's not welcome back. But what was he supposed to do? He woke up in the morning blind, and now through an encounter with Jesus, he can see, and everything has changed. Like, you can't hold that kind of news in. And so he got his sight, but he lost everything else. And then here comes Jesus once again. And remember something, they've never seen each other eye to eye, or at least the blind man hasn't. When they met before, he was blind, but now he sees Jesus for the first time. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And what did Jesus do? He pursued him. He found him and he said, do you believe in the son of the man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. Verse 37, Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Again, two lessons, two lessons behind this miracle for us today. The first is this, that Jesus wants to do something amazing in you. This is true of you, no matter who you are. No matter your past, no matter what you think of Jesus, no matter what you've ever thought of him, like he wants to do something amazing in your life. He wants to open your eyes to help you see him for who he is and what he can do in your life. Jesus wants to give you faith, faith to trust him and believe him so that like this man in the story, you might be able to say and declare, yes, Lord, I believe. He wants to give you hope. Jesus wants to give you hope, hope in a world that can feel pretty hopeless at times. Jesus is a great healer. The healer that we see here, he still works miracles today, and he can heal your hurt. He can heal your wounds. Jesus came to save you. He came to redeem you, to put his life and light in you. Again, John 8, 12, I am the light of the world, Jesus said. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And, and here's the great thing about Jesus. In the same way that he still opens the eyes of the blind, well, he can also clear the fog. From those of you that would say that you 
once believed but might be struggling to believe today. He can, he can heal that hurt. Uh, he can meet you in those questions uh, that have come up in your life. This is a, a Savior who is willing to come close to you, and, and He is a great provider and a good friend, and, and you may have wandered away from Jesus in your life, even given up on Him. I can promise you that He's never given up on you. And He is here for you, and He invites you and me. Again, I am the light of the world. He says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus wants to do something amazing in you, to be light for you. But the second thing that we remember is that he also wants to do something amazing through you. Through you as his child, as a redeemed child of God. You know, he wants to do something great through you. Like Jesus changed this man's life and there's nothing that could stop this man from telling his story. And as Jesus has given his life for us, well, I think the question we need to wrestle with how is how is that impacting the way that I live for him? Like how often do you share the story of what Jesus is doing and has accomplished for you in your life? How, how is Jesus influencing the way you speak to and the way you interact with others? Like, how is Jesus having an impact on the way that you love people, the way you love your neighbors, the way you love your teachers, the way you love the people that are around you, the people that you work with? Like, he's given you influence. Like, he's given every single one of us influence. He's put people in your life for a reason. Are these people that you're investing in? Are these people that you're, you're praying for? Jesus, he wants to use your home. Uh, he wants to use your business. He wants to use uh, your time that you have, all right, for the sake of helping people, others, find their way back to him. And, and he wants to do more through our church. But if he's going to do more through our church, then he must do more in each of us because the church is made up of people. Right? And we want to be people that are saved by grace. We want to be people who experience and encounter the light so that we can be light for others. Your life is not an accident. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you have the light of Jesus in you. Make sure that others can see it and experience it. Tiffany's going to come and uh, close today for us as we sing the song, uh, amazing Grace. You know that song. We've sung it before. You've sung it outside of here. We sing it in all sorts of places. Written by John Newton, the lyrics say, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Once blind, but now I see. John Newton says, Wretch. He's describing himself. This is his life story as he writes these lyrics. And re what a wretch he was because before Jesus opened his eyes, Newton captained a slave ship responsible for transporting men, women, and children from Africa to Europe to America. Horrific work. work. But then Jesus got a hold of his life. And Newton realized how blind he really was. Jesus radically changed him. He repented, confessed of his sins. His life was changed. Newton went on to help bring about change. And he eventually wrote the words to the song, Amazing Grace. It's his story. If you're in Jesus Christ, it's your story. It's my story too.
Let's pray, and then we're going to close by singing that song together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. And once again, how he demonstrates your great love, your amazing grace, the the truth of what Jesus, of what you are able to do in each and every one of us. Thank you for the sacrifice of your son and the life that is offered to us through him. And thank you for the reminder that there is no life that's an accident and that you can do immeasurably more than we could ever hope for or imagine through our lives as we trust you and as we live for you. Father, I pray for every person here today and maybe someone here today that has never put their faith and trust in you, that today might be the day that they declare, like the man in this story, Lord, I believe. Have your way in us. Have your way in this room, in our hearts, and in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.